This is The Guardian. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. It's been a busy couple of years for the world's scientists. Faced with a new virus spreading rapidly around the globe, they race to gather data, develop models, run tests, find treatments, and create entirely new vaccines all the while trying to navigate this strange new world, just like the rest of us. Oh, right. Where does Mummy want you to go? I think just on that shelf is great. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is the most informative interview I've done all day. They also had to work with politicians who, with limited information, had to make critical decisions that would lead countries through the pandemic. Not always the easiest of jobs, and then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that too. Sounds interesting. At the time, there was no obvious right path. But now, two years on, we can look back and see where we might have gone wrong. That's the subject of a new book, Preventable, by Professor Debbie Schreeder, Chair of Global Public Health at the University of Edinburgh. During the pandemic, Debbie quickly got to work to understand the virus. She was soon advising the Scottish government and sharing this information with us too. So what was it like being a very public public health expert? And from her experience, what are the lessons to be learned for next time? I'm Ian Sample, The Guardian's science editor, and this is Science Weekly. Early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, Debbie was one of the academics who was catapulted into the spotlight with regular media appearances and a Twitter following that swelled to hundreds of thousands. It still feels kind of bizarre because I've always been interested in public communication. And even pre-COVID, I had done work with the BBC and others around Zika virus, around Ebola, even around kind of vitamin D supplementation, things which are generally kind of public health issues, but largely don't impact people's daily lives. And I think the big difference was in mid-March when I went from kind of sharing information on what was happening in China and South Korea on the Diamond Princess cruise ship to actually, oh, what's happening here. And I didn't anticipate the backlash. I thought people would rather understand what was happening and why. 
But it also became that when people started to see your face, they associated it with bad news, which is what some of my friends said when they started seeing me more and more in March. They're like, things must be going bad because the more we see you, we know something's off. Um, and I think politicians did lean on scientists to communicate those messages rather than often having to give that hard news themselves. And if we were going to play troll bingo, I mean, you'd be ticking a lot of the boxes that seem to attract that kind of behavior. I mean, you're young, you're a woman, you're a person of color. Here you are, you're trying to get public health information across while you're facing this onslaught of negative attention. I mean, you can't even post a picture of your vegan baking without getting flack for it. (laughs) Did you expect that kind of response? I mean, what's that been like? Yeah, it's been difficult because in public health, like we're usually the good guys. So to go from being one of the good guys to being like a villain who people actively dislike or react to is is difficult. There are different movements. And I think it's interesting because they're kind of motivated by different things. And I feel like, unfortunately, I was speaking about any of these. So anytime you mention the words masks, lockdown, vaccinations, variants, or even something like you know, Nicola Sturgeon, immediately the trolls would emerge. There's like, they have their own bingo. I think they're waiting for certain words and then they kind of come out. But I think in the end, most people I meet, almost everyone, everyone actually in my daily life, they understand the complexity of the issue and that there was no perfect way through this. There was just multiple bad ways. And it was kind of trying to navigate your way through that. And hindsight is a wonderful thing in these situations. But if you could go back, what would you tell your past self? I mean, in the book, you know that many scientists will very reasonably want to stay out of the spotlight when the next pandemic hits. Yeah, I think I probably will try to step back if there was a future one. I kind of feel like I've done my tour of duty (laughs) with this one, but try to train, you know, postdocs, early career researchers to go out there, but also train them in the backlash you will face and how to cope with it. Because I think it becomes about so much more than what you're talking about that it's very difficult because you get people reading something like COVID is a hoax. And I got deluged with like 50 letters asking me to send samples of COVID out to prove it was real because they think it's a hoax. And I'm just like, I don't really know how to engage with this. We're not really trained in that. You know, we're trained how to do research, ask questions, collect data, write articles, write grants, teach, lecture. It's a whole range of skills, but we're not really trained to deal with the public and especially kind of when the public has such a direct access to you and that information that they are trying to get from you when you're just like, where do I even start with trying to prove COVID is real and that it's not a hoax? Are there particular strategies that you happened upon, developed to cope with all of this that you would sort of pass on as things that, you know, the future scientists may want to know when when it's their turn? I think like the Three things I would say to kind of a younger version of myself is first, that you can't control what others say about you. You can only control your reaction to all kind of the hate and abuse of God. I just try to react with kind of, I know it sounds very weird, but like with just love and kindness and just be like, you know what, I'm sorry, people are angry or that's spreading, but I'm just going to control my emotions. Um, I think the second thing is not to define yourself, especially with social media by likes or retweets. One of the dangers that several academics have gone down on social media especially by creating big fan bases, is thinking that they're saying something really clever or something that's really important because they get lots of retweets or likes. It's probably because you're saying something quite extreme instead. And the third thing is whenever it becomes too much, just to kind of go back to real life, you know, going into the park, friends, neighbors, family, real people, because a lot of these platforms can feel quite real until you take a step back and realize that actually 
humanity generally is pretty good. It's just that we see snippets of how awful it can be. One of the things I found interesting was those snippets of bad behavior didn't just come from the public, but sometimes from other researchers too. You kind of expect there to be debate among scientists, some gentle arguing perhaps, but it was strange at times to see these disagreements get really tense and occasionally quite personal. Yeah, I mean, I think the two phenomena that came together was first that what I would call COVID camps, not like not COVID camps, like putting people on a camp for COVID, but like COVID camps in terms of flag planting emerged where academics who always like to be right kind of said, oh, this is what's going to happen and then wanted that to happen. And when that didn't happen or aligned, they just kept trying to reinforce that base point instead of moving with the evidence. So I think if you haven't changed your mind in two years on lots of issues, it's an indication of just not paying enough attention to how much has changed in terms of our understanding. And the second bit of it is scientists, like we're also human. Sometimes people's personal situation often influenced what they were saying publicly. So for example, if you had someone who was immunocompromised in your household, you might take a very stance on actually, we need to eradicate COVID even post-vaccine. You know, any kind of spread is unacceptable. And quite a lot, sometimes when I was hearing colleagues speak, if I knew what their personal situation was, I was like, okay, I can kind of understand why they're taking the position they're taking instead of kind of trying to detach a bit and take a more kind of neutral view on all the different pieces of the puzzle. One thing the pandemic's really cast a light on is the importance of scientists and politicians to be able to work together. Um, in your book, you're quite critical about how the government's scientific advisory group for emergencies or SAGE was run and, and some of their early decisions. Why is that? Well, I think SAGE was not transparent. Nobody knew who was on it. Um, the advice was not public. And for the government to be taking such a huge decision in early March to be saying, we're not going to be doing testing or tracing. We're going to already live with this. We're moving into mitigation and saying, well, we're following the science. That's what scientists are saying to us. And not having access to what information did SAGE have was incredibly frustrating. And I remember colleagues calling me from Germany and the United States because we were suddenly doing something different to everyone else, asking, what do you guys know that we don't know? And to be able to say, well, I don't know. I don't even know who's on it. So I can't even call someone and say, hey, can you explain to me? what you're doing there. By March and where we were in March, there was enough information to say, oh, actually, we can't let this spread without having some kind of management through scientific tools. Um, we have to suppress. And the best way to suppress was through mass testing. And for me, mass testing just would pull out people who were infectious from the population. So you'd break chains of transmission through just pulling out those who were infectious. Where a lockdown, the route we went down, treats everyone like they're infectious. And do you think that was a failure of the people who were on SAGE or did they, did SAGE just not have all the right people on board? I think it's the second part, definitely. The people on it who now discover the names are all, you know, world leading scientists and I have nothing but positive things to say about their work and their reputation and what they've done. But they only cover, we can only cover our area. You know, even speaking about myself, like when we're talking about here in Scotland, COVID vaccination certification, I could speak to the benefits from public health, other places that had tried it, you know, what it could do in terms of, you know, reducing transmission to a certain extent. But I couldn't talk about the economic costs. I couldn't talk about what it would mean for business and footfall and what actually would this mean in terms of in implementation and policing. You'd have to have other people at the table who can each kind of contribute what they know from their area of work. 
The actions we are asking people to take are unprecedented, but I want to be very clear again today that they are necessary. They are about saving lives, protecting the population as a whole, and safeguarding our NHS. You describe in the book having a very good working relationship with Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's First Minister. What went right there, and why do you think you got on so well? Probably she appreciated that I kind of speak quite bluntly. That's probably what's got me in trouble over the course of this. So I think what went right was just being able to give advice without fear or favor and knowing that whatever I said, it wasn't going to be that she was going to, you know, say, oh, that's not what I want to hear. She actually wanted to hear it because she had to go out to do her daily briefings. And if I didn't ask it, the journalists would be asking it. And I think dealing with politicians is also realizing that, you know, they have a wider range of concerns than just public health. There were trade-offs and different countries made the trade-off they felt was acceptable to their politicians and to their people. And I guess the the interesting thing for the next pandemic is, will those trade-offs be the same or will countries choose a different priority to get through this? Finally, Debbie, I'm keen to know how you personally are going to prepare. I mean, what what would you tell your sort of future self now? Um, I think my future self is there's both the professional side, which is, you know, making sure that we're doing the right work, that we're taking the lessons from COVID, what worked and what doesn't work, and feed that back to governments. So that's kind of the research piece. And I think personally, it's kind of just taught me to live each day for itself. I'm quite a planner. Like I like to plan the future. I like to know what's happening. Before watching this season's Bridgerton, I read the ending because I was like, then I need to, I know what happens when I watch it. I like knowing how things work out. So I think one of the things that I've been doing is just learning that, you know, with COVID, we couldn't see the ending. You could see contours, you could see patterns, but learning just to live in the day and kind of take the unpredictability of whatever might happen and just kind of try to find positivity and joy in whatever you're doing that day because we don't know what tomorrow brings. And I think that's the lesson definitely from COVID, given I don't think any of us knew in January 2020 how our lives would change in such dramatic ways in the months to come. Wise words. Devi, thanks so much for coming on. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Debbie Schreeder. We've put a link to her book, Preventable, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. If, like Devi, you're looking for ways to get a break from the news cycle and find a bit of positivity and joy, I'd like to recommend The Guardian's weekend podcast. Each Saturday, we pick some of the best Guardian and Observer features you might have missed to help you relax after a long week. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it from us today. The producers were Madeline Finley and Anand Jagatir. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku, and the executive producer was Danielle Stevens. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson, 
Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.